at home. Jess and Henry had a short committee meeting the next morning, before the others awoke. It was agreed that nobody should be allowed to stray off into the woods alone, not even the dog. And with much mystery, Henry left some orders with all of them as to what they should build for him during the morning. What for? asked Benny. Shan't tell, old fellow, teased Henry. You just build it, and you'll see later. So Henry walked briskly through the woods, feeling sure that the noise in the night had been made by a rabbit. Having no watch, Henry made a slight mistake by appearing at the young doctor's door before eight o'clock. He was just in time to meet the doctor coming in from a night call. If Henry had not been so eager to begin work, he would have noticed how the young man's dark eyes examined him from head to foot, even to his plastered hair, wet with brook water. It was not the doctor who directed his work, but the doctor's mother, the sweet-faced Mrs. McAllister, whose heart was centered in her son and her vegetable garden. Her heart warmed to the boy when she saw how carefully he thinned out the carrots, which had been sadly neglected. I've been so busy, she declared, that I've actually stayed awake nights worrying about those carrots. There, see that? She pulled out a fairly good-sized carrot as she spoke. It had to come out, for it was much too near its neighbors. In fact, when Henry had thinned out half a row, he had quite a little pile of eatable carrots, each as large as his thumb. When Mrs. McAllister saw Henry deftly press the earth back again around the carrots which remained standing, she left him quietly with a smile. Here was a gardener whom she could trust. Henry worked steadily in the hot sun, completing row after row of carrots, parsnips, and onions. When the mill bells rang at noon, he worked on, without noticing that his employer was again watching him. When he did at last notice, he asked her, smiling, what she wanted done with the things he had pulled up. Oh, throw them away, she said indifferently. Toss them over into the orchard, and sometime we'll bury them when they get dry. Do you mind if I take them myself? asked Henry, hesitatingly. Oh, no, said Mrs. McAllister cordially. Have you chickens? That will be fine. Henry was thankful that she went right along without waiting for an answer. But in a way, he did have chickens, he thought. You must stop working now, she said. Any time you want to do something, there will be a place for you here. She gave him a dollar bill and left the delighted boy with the piles of precious little vegetables. As long as Henry expected to return so soon, he hastily selected an orderly bunch of the largest of the carrots and the smallest of the onions. He added a few of the miniature parsnips for good measure. They looked like little doll's vegetables. When Henry walked down the drive with his bouquet, he would have seen a face at the window if he had looked up. But he did not look up. He was too anxious to get to the little old man's shop and order his meat. So it happened that Henry walked in upon his little family at about two o'clock with all the materials for a feast. The feast could not be made ready before night, Jess hastened to explain to Benny, who was perfectly satisfied anyway with bread and milk in his pink cup. Your building is done, Benny informed his brother. I builded lots of it. 
He really did, agreed Violet, leading the way to the sunny open spot a trifle behind the house. The building was a fireplace. With an enormous amount of labor, the children had made quite a hollow at the base of a rock. This was lined completely with flat stones. More flat stones had been set on end to keep out the wind. On top of the stones lay the most wonderful collection of firewood that you can imagine, all ready to light. There were chips and bits of crumpled paper, pine cones, and dry twigs. Beside the big rock was a woodpile. The children had apparently been working like beavers all the morning. Jess had found a heavy wire in the dump and had fastened it between two trees. On the wire, the kettle swung merrily. Fine, fine, shouted Henry when he saw it. I couldn't have done it so well myself. And he honestly believed it. We have dinner at night here, observed Jess impressively. What did you buy? When the girls saw the tiny vegetables, they began with cries of delight to cut them from their stalks with Henry's knife and a broken paring knife. They scrubbed them in the wash tub, filled the kettle half full of water from the well, and proceeded in great excitement to cut the raw meat into cubes. When this had been dropped into the kettle, Henry lighted the fire. It burned frantically as if it were trying to encourage the stew to do its best. Violet laid the tin plate over the top for a cover, and they all stood by to hear the first bubble. Soon, the savory stuff in the kettle began to boil in good earnest. Watch sat down gravely near it and gave an approving sniff at intervals. Keep it boiling, advised Henry as he departed again. When I come home tonight, I'll bring some salt. And for mercy's sake, don't get on fire. Violet pointed silently at the big teapot. The little girl had filled it with water in case of emergency. That's if Benny gets on fire, she explained. Or watch. Henry laughed and went on his way happily enough. He wished he might share the delightful task of keeping the fire going and sniffing the stew. But when he found out his afternoon's duties, he changed his mind abruptly. Think you can clean up this garage? asked Dr. McAllister quizzically when he appeared. Henry flashed a look around the place and met the young man's eyes with a smile. It did need cleaning rather badly. When its owner purred out in his high-powered little car, Henry drew a long breath and began in earnest. He opened all the chests of drawers to begin with. Then he arranged all the tools in the largest deep drawer and with a long-handled brush and a can of black paint that was nearly dry. He labeled the drawer Tools with neat lettering. Another drawer he lettered Nails and assorted its contents into a few of the many boxes that were lying around. He folded up the robes he found, swept off the shelves and arranged the oil cans in orderly ranks, sorted out innumerable pairs of gloves, and then swept the floor. He washed the cement floor with the hose, and while waiting for it to dry, he rinsed his brushes in turpentine. To tell the truth, Henry had found a few things in the rubbish which he had stored in his own pocket. The treasure consisted in this case of a quantity of bent and rusty nails of all sizes and a few screws and nuts. When Dr. McAllister returned at six o'clock, 
He found Henry corking up the turpentine and arranging the brushes on the shelf. My word, he exclaimed, staring at his garage with his mouth open. Then he threw back his head and laughed till his mother came down the walk to see what the matter was. Look at my gloves, mother, he said, wiping his eyes. All made it up. They never met each other before that I remember. Mrs. McAllister looked the garage over and observed the newly labeled drawers. Her son opened one of them and looked at his four hammers. My tack hammer, mother, he said. Your tack hammer and two other hammers. The last one I never expected to see again. If you can use it, you may have it, my boy. Now, it is no exaggeration to say that at that moment, if Henry had been asked what he wanted most of anything in the world, he would have answered without any hesitation whatever, a hammer. He accepted it gratefully, hardly able to stand still so anxious was he to put it into use on the hill he called home. Tomorrow's Sunday, said the doctor. Shall I see you on Monday? Oh, yes, replied Henry, who had lost all track of the days. The cherries need picking, said his new friend. We could use any number of cherry pickers, if they were as careful as you. He gave him an odd look. Could you? asked Henry eagerly. I'll surely come down. With that, he bade his friends goodbye and started for home, richer by another dollar, two donuts the cook had given him, a pocket full of crooked nails, and the rest of the vegetables. When he reached his freight car home, a delicious savor greeted him. Onions! he shouted, running up to the kettle. The cook stood by and took off the cover and put in the salt. It was absolutely the most tantalizing odor that Henry had ever smelled. Years afterward, Jess tried to duplicate it with the same kettle, vegetables from the same garden, and all stirred with the same spoon, but it didn't equal this stew in flavor. A ladle! As sure as I live! gasped Henry. Jess had found a tin cup in the dump and fastened on a wooden handle with a bit of wire. And when she ladled out four portions on four plates of all sizes, some of them tin, and laid a spoon in each, the children felt that the world held no greater riches. The tiny onions floated around like pearls, the carrots melted in your mouth, and the shreds of meat were as tender as possible from long boiling. A bit of bread in one hand helped the feast along wonderfully. The little wanderers ate until they could eat no more. I have time before dark to make Benny's cart, observed Henry, biting a crisp, sweet carrot. With my wheels? asked Benny. Yes, sir, with your wheels, agreed Henry. Only when it's done, you'll have to cart stones in it. Sure, said Benny with satisfaction. Cart stones or anything. We'll need it in making the dam explained Henry for the benefit of his sisters. Tomorrow's Sunday, so I shan't work down in the town. Do you think it's all right to build the pool on Sunday, Jess? I certainly do, replied Jess with emphasis. We're just building the dam so we can keep clean. I guess if Sunday's your only day off, it'll be all right. 
Henry's conscience was set at rest as he began with great delight to hammer out his bent nails. He and Benny ran about finding pieces of wood to fasten the wheels on. A visit to the dump was necessary at last, in order to find just the right piece of timber for a tongue. But before it was too dark to see, Henry had pounded the last nail in place and trundled the flat cart back and forth just to see it go. The cart seemed valuable enough to all of them to take into the house for the night. And Henry could not afford to laugh at Benny for going to sleep with his new hand upon one of his precious wheels. For he himself had tucked his new hammer under his pillow. Building the Dam Even a hammer makes a good pillow if one is tired enough. And the freight car family slept until the nine o'clock church bells began to ring faintly in the valley. There were at least a dozen churches, and their faraway bells sounded sweetly harmonious in so many different keys. They almost play a tune, said Violet, as she listened. I like music all right, replied Henry in a businesslike way, but I for one shall have to get to work. This will be a good day to wash all the stockings, said Jess. We'll all be wading so much in the brook anyway. After breakfast, the first thing Henry did was to survey, with critical eyes, the spot they had chosen for a pool. It was a hollow about three yards across. There were no stones in it at all. It's big enough already, remarked Henry at last, but it hasn't enough water in it. He measured its depth with a stick. We'll have to guess at inches, he said. I have a little tape measure in my work bag, ventured his sister Violet. Henry flashed a smile at her. Is there anything you haven't got in your work bag? He asked her. The children measured the wet stick carefully. The water was just ten inches deep in the deepest part. Henry explained his plan of engineering to his sisters. We will have to haul some big logs across this narrow part and stuff them from this end with stones and underbrush. It ought to be three feet deep before we get through. Oh, Henry, protested Jess. Benny would get drowned. Drowned, echoed Henry. How tall do you think he is, anyhow? They measured the little boy and found him to be 42 inches tall. That settled it. The pool was designed to be three feet in depth. Luckily, the largest logs were not far away. But as it was, it was a matter of great labor for the builders to drag them to the scene of operations. Let's get all the logs up here first, suggested Jess. Then we can have the fun of laying them across. The two older children dragged all the logs, while Violet and Penny attended to the stones, with the help of the cart. Occasionally, Henry was called upon to assist with a heavy stone, but for the most part, Benny puffed out his cheeks and heaved the stones himself. In fact, Henry decided at this point to let Benny drop them into the water as he gathered them. Splash them right in, old fellow, he directed. Only keep them in a nice straight line right across this place between these two trees. It won't make any difference how wet he gets, he added in an aside to Jess. We can dry him in the sun. Jess thought a little differently, although she said nothing. She took off Benny's little crinkled blouse and one pair of bloomers and started to hang them on the line. 
Good time to wash them, she exclaimed. Let me wash them, begged Violet. You're more useful building the dam. There was wisdom in this suggestion, so Jess accepted it gratefully, and even added Henry's blouse to the laundry. When we finish the dam, they will surely be dry, she said. As for Henry, he was only too glad to work without it. Makes me feel lighter, he declared. Rare and beautiful birds came and watched the barefooted children as they scurried around, building their wall of masonry. But the children did not have any eyes for birds then. They watched with delighted eyes as each stone was added to the wall under the clear water, and it began to rise almost to the surface. That makes a solid foundation for the logs, you see, explained Henry with pride. They won't be floating off downstream the minute we lay them on. Then at last the time arrived when they were to lay the logs on. Let's wedge the first one between these two trees, said Jess with a happy thought. Then, if each end of the log is on the upper side of the trees, the harder the water pounds, the tighter the dam gets. Good work! exclaimed Henry admiringly. That's just what we'll do. But the children were not at all prepared for what happened the moment the first big log was splashed into its place on top of the stone wall. The water, defeated in its course down the rocky bed, gurgled and chased about as it met the opposing log and found every possible hole to escape. Leaks, said Henry briefly, as the water began to rush around both ends and pour over the top of the log. We'll make the log so thick it can't get through. We'll lay three logs across, with three logs on top of them, and three more on top of that. The children set about stubbornly to accomplish this. Violet held great sprays of fine underbrush in place until each log was laid. Wetter children never were seen, but nobody cared. They resolutely plugged the ends with more stones, more underbrush, and more logs. Each time a leak was discovered, someone dropped a stone over it. Even Benny caught the fever of conquering the mischievous water which slipped from their grasp like quicksilver. When the three top logs were at last dropped into place, the excited children sat down to watch the pool fill. This it did slowly. Finding now no means of exit, the water was quieter. It rose steadily up the barricade of logs. It widened beautifully. Henry could not sit still. It slopes, he cried. See how clear it is? And still? See how still it is? And then the water began to overflow the logs. It spilled over the top with a delightful curve. And on the other side, it formed a second waterfall. Not high and narrow and graceful like the natural fall above, but very low and wide. Just like a regular mill dam, said Henry. He held the measuring stick out as far as he could and plunged it into the water. It lacked an inch of being three feet deep. Deep enough, he declared. In fact, it looked so deep that Benny could not conceal a slight fear. That's the beauty of the slope, observed Jess. Benny can wade in just as far as he wants to, and no farther. We all know what the bed of the pool is like. No holes or stones. The girls had to leave to prepare dinner, 
but Henry could not be persuaded to leave the wonderful swimming pool. I'd rather swim than eat, he said. Luckily for the children, their supply of provisions was the largest of any day since their flight. The girls lighted the fire and heated up the remainder of the stew and cut the bread. The butter, hard and cold in the refrigerator, was taken out and four portions cut from it. The two doughnuts made four half rings for dessert. The cooks rang the dinner bell. This was an ingenious arrangement hung on a low branch. It consisted of a piece of bent steel swung on a string. Violet hit it sharply with another piece of steel. It sounded deeply and musically through the woods, and the boys understood it and obeyed it at once. It was evident the moment they appeared that at least three of the family had been swimming. Watch shook himself violently at intervals, spattering water drops in all directions. Henry and Benny, fresh and radiant, with plastered hair and clean, dry stockings and blouses, apparently liked to swim and eat, too. You can actually swim a few strokes in it, Jess, if you're careful, Henry said, with excusable pride, as he sat down to dinner. Building a dam is wonderful sauce for a dinner. I think stew is much better the second day, observed Benny, eating hungrily. There remained two more adventures for the eventful day. The girls cut their hair. Violet's dark curls came off first. They're awfully in the way, explained Violet, and so much trouble when you're working. They were tangled, too, and Jess cut them off evenly by a string with Violet's little scissors. Jess's chestnut hair was long and silky and nicely braided, but she never murmured as it came off, too. The two girls ran to the brook mirror to see how they looked. The new haircut was very becoming to both. I like you better that way, Henry said approvingly. Lots more sensible when you're living in the woods. Around four o'clock, the children took a long walk in the opposite direction from any of their other explorations. They were rewarded by two discoveries. One was a hollow tree literally filled with walnuts, gathered presumably by a thrifty squirrel the previous fall. The other discovery frightened them just a little at first, for with bristling back and a loud bark, Watch suddenly began to rout out something in the leaves, and that something began to cackle and half run and half fly from the intruders. It was a runaway hen. The children succeeded in catching the dog and reducing him to order, although it was clear he liked very much to chase hens. She had some eggs, too, remarked Benny, as if trying to make pleasant conversation. Jess bent over incredulously and saw a rude nest in the moss in which there were five eggs. A runaway hen, said Henry, hardly believing his eyes. She wants to hide her nest and raise chickens. The children had no scruples at all about taking the eggs. Almost a gift from heaven, said Violet, stroking one of the eggs with a delicate finger. It wouldn't be polite to refuse them. Scrambled eggs made a delicious supper for the children. Jess broke all the eggs into the biggest bowl and beat them vigorously with a spoon until they were light and foamy. Then she added milk and salt 
and delegated Violet to beat them some more while she prepared the fire. The big kettle, empty and clean, was hung over the low fire and butter was dropped in. Jess watched it anxiously, tipping the kettle slightly in all directions. When the butter had reached the exact shade of brown, Jess poured in the eggs and stirred them carefully, holding her skirts away from the fire. She was amply repaid for her care when she saw her family attack the meal. Clearly, this was a feast day. We shall have to be satisfied tomorrow to live on bread and milk, she observed, scraping up the last of the delicious morsel. But when tomorrow came, they had more than bread and milk, as you will soon see. Cherry Picking Henry meditated a while, all to himself early the next morning, as to whether he ought to take anyone with him for the cherry picking. He certainly said he could use more than one, he mused. Failing to decide the question, he laid it before his sisters as they ate bread and milk for breakfast. I can't see any reason, except one, why we shouldn't all go, said Jess. What's that? asked Henry. Well, you see there are four of us, and supposing Grandfather is looking for us, it will be easier to find four than one. True, agreed Henry. But supposing we went down the hill and through the streets, two by two, and you took watch. It was finally agreed that Henry and Benny would attract very little attention together. Violet and Jess would follow with the dog, who would trace Henry. And so they set out. They took down the clothesline and closed the car door. Everything instantly looked as lonesome as heart could wish. Even the merry little brook looked deserted. When the children arrived at the McAllister Orchard, they soon saw that they were not the only workers. Two hired men and the young doctor himself were carrying ladders and baskets from the barn, and the Irish cook was bringing piles of square baskets from the house, the kind that strawberries are sold in. "'The girls can pick cherries as well as I can,' said Henry, introducing his sisters. "'Benny ought not to climb very tall trees, but we had to bring him.' "'Benny can carry the baskets, perhaps,' suggested the doctor, much amused. "'You see, this is a cherry year, and we have to work quickly,' when we once begin. Perhaps he could fill the small baskets from the big ones. It was a cherry year, certainly. There were two varieties in the orchard, the pale yellow kind with a red cheek and the deep crimson ones, which were just as red in the center as they were on the outside. The red ones were huge, bursting with juice, and the trees were laden full with the luscious fruit. Even the air was perfumed. It was a pretty sight that the doctor finally turned his back upon when he went on his calls. Henry, slim, tanned, and graceful, picked rapidly from the tallest ladder and the largest tree. The two girls in their sensible bloomer suits could climb like cats. They leaned against the ladders easily about halfway up, their fluffy short hair gleaming in the sun. Benny totted to and fro, waiting upon the busy pickers, his cheeks as red as the cherries themselves. "'Eat all you want,' 
Dr. McAllister called back. They did not really obey this command, but occasionally a set of white teeth bit into one of the glorious ox hearts. In less than an hour, Benny had made five firm friends. The hired men joked with him, the cook petted him, the young doctor laughed at him delightedly, and sweet Mrs. McAllister fell in love with him. Finally, he seated himself comfortably at her side under the trees and filled square boxes with great care under her direction. I never had such a cheerful crowd of cherry pickers before, Mrs. McAllister said at last. I'd much rather stay out here than go into the house where it is cool. Evidently, Mary the cook felt the same way, for she kept coming to the orchard for some reason or another. When the doctor returned at lunchtime, his orchard was ringing with laughter and good-natured barks from Watch, who could not feel easy in his mind with his mistress so high up in a tree where he couldn't follow. Dr. McAllister paused in the garage long enough to give a sniff to the boiling cherries in the kitchen, and then made his way to the orchard, where he received a warm welcome. "'There's no use in you going home to lunch,' he smilingly observed, at the same time watching Henry's face carefully. "'You can eat right here in the orchard, unless your mother will be worrying about you.' This remark met with an astounding silence. Henry was the first to collect his wits. No, our mother is dead, he said evenly, without embarrassment. It was the doctor who hastened to change the subject he had introduced. I smelled something when I came in, he said to Benny. What did it smell like? inquired Benny. It smelled like cherry slump, replied the doctor with twinkling eyes. Cherry what? asked Jess, struggling down her ladder with a full basket. I think that's what they call it. Slump, repeated Dr. McAllister. Do you care to try it? At this moment, Mary appeared in the orchard with an enormous tray. And at the first sight of her cookery, nobody cared the least what its name was. It was that rare combination of dumpling beaten with stoned cherries and cooked gently in the juice of the ox-heart cherries in a real cherry year. It was steaming in the red juice, with the least suspicion of melted butter over the whole. "'Do get two more, Mary,' begged Mrs. McAllister, laughing. "'It tastes so much better under the cherry trees.' This was another meal that nobody ever forgot. Even the two hired men sitting under another tree devouring the delicious pudding paused to hear Benny laugh. Nowadays, those two men sometimes meet Henry. But that's another story. Anyway, they never will forget that cherry slump made by Irish Mary. Almost as soon as lunch was over, Benny rolled over in the grass and went to sleep, his head, as usual, on the dog's back. But the others worked on steadily, Mrs. McAllister kept an eye on them from the screened porch without their knowledge. "'Just see how those children keep at it,' she said to her son. "'There is good stuff in them. I should like to know where they came from.' Dr. McAllister said nothing. He sauntered out into the orchard when he thought they had worked long enough. He paid them four dollars and gave them all the cherries they could carry, 
although they tried to object. You see, you're better than most pickers, because you're so cheerful. He noticed that they did not all leave the yard at the same time. When the cherry pickers returned to their little home, they examined everything carefully. Nothing had been disturbed. The door was still shut, and the milk and butter stood untouched in the refrigerator. They made a hilarious meal of raw cherries and bread and butter, and before the stars came out, they were fast asleep, happy and dreamless. That evening, very much later, a young man sat in his study with the evening paper. He read the news idly and was just on the point of tossing the paper aside when this advertisement caught his eye. Lost. Four children, aged 13, 12, 10, and 5. Somewhere around the region of Middlesex and Townsend. $5,000 reward for information. James Henry Cordes. Whew, whistled the young man. James Henry Cordes. He sat in perfect silence for a long time, thinking. Then he went to bed. But long after he had gone upstairs, he whistled again, and could have been heard to say, if anyone had been awake to hear it, James Henry Cordes, of all people. The Race the Cordes Steel Mills stood a little aside from the city of Greenfield, as if they were a little too good to associate with common factories. James Henry Cordes sat in a huge leather chair in his private office. He was a man nearly 60 years of age, whose dark brown hair was still untouched by gray. He had rather hard lines around his mouth, but softer ones around his eyes. Printed on the ground glass top of his door were these words in black and gold. J. H. Cordes, President, Private. Once a year, J. H. Cordes allowed himself a holiday. If he had a weakness, it was for healthy children. Children running without hats, children jumping, throwing rings, swimming, vaulting with a long pole. And in company with three other extremely rich men, he arranged, once a year, a field day for the town of Intervale. The men attended it in person and supplied all the money. This was field day. All through the spring and early summer months, people were in training for miles around, getting ready for Intervale's field day. And not only children, but adults also, old and young, Children of all ages in the bargain. Prizes were offered for tennis, baseball, rowing, swimming, running, and every imaginable type of athletic feat. But usually the interest of the day centered on a free-for-all race of one mile, which everyone enjoyed, and a great many people entered. A prize of $25 was offered to the winner of this race, and also a silver trophy cup with little wings on its handles. Sometimes this cup was won by a middle-aged man, sometimes by a girl, and sometimes by a trained athlete. 
Mr. Cordes smiled about his eyes as he closed his desk, ordered his limousine, and went out and locked the door of his office. The mill had been closed down for the day. Everyone attended field day. Henry was washing the concrete drives at Dr. McAllister's at this moment. He heard the doctor call to him from the road, so he promptly turned off the hose and ran out to see what was wanted. Hop in, commanded the doctor, not stopping his engine. You ought to go see the stunts at the athletic meet. It's field day. Henry did not wish to delay the doctor, so he hopped in. Can't go myself, said Dr. McAllister. I'll just drop you at the grounds. There's no charge for admittance. You just watch all the events and report to me who wins. Henry tried to explain to his friend that he ought to be working, but there was actually no time. And when he found himself seated on the bleachers and the stunts began, he forgot everything in the world except the exciting events before his eyes. Henry had no pencil, but he had an excellent memory. He repeated over and over the name of each winner as it appeared on the huge signboard. It was nearly 11 o'clock when the free-for-all running race was announced. What do they mean, free-for-all? Asked Henry of a small boy at his side. Why, just anybody, explained the boy curiously. Didn't you ever see one? Didn't you see the one last year? No, said Henry. The boy laughed. That was a funny one, he said. There was a college runner in it and a couple of men and some girls. Lots of people. And a little boy over there won it. You just ought to have seen that boy run. He ran so fast you couldn't see his legs. Beat the college runner, you know. Henry gazed at the winner of last year's race. He was smaller than Henry, but apparently older. In a few minutes, Henry had quietly left his place on the bleachers. When the boy turned to speak to him again, he was gone. He had gone, in fact, to the dressing room, where boys of all sizes were putting on sandals and running trunks. A man stepped up to him quickly. "'Want to enter?' he asked. "'No time to waste.' "'Yes,' replied Henry. The man tossed him a pair of white shoes and some blue trunks. He liked the look of Henry's face as he paused to ask in an undertone, "'Where did you train?' Never trained, replied Henry. I suppose you know these fellows have been training all the year, observed the man. You don't expect to win. Oh, no, replied Henry, apparently shocked at the idea. But it's lots of fun to run, you know. He was dressed and ready by this time. How light he felt. He felt as if he could almost fly. Presently, the contestants were all marshaled out to the running track. Henry was number four. Now, Henry had never been trained to run, but the boy possessed an unusual quantity of common sense. It's a mile race, he thought to himself, and it's the second half mile that counts. So it happened that this was the main thought in his mind when the starter's gong sounded and the racers shot away down the track. In almost no time, Henry was far behind the first half of the runners. But strangely enough, he did not seem to mind this greatly. It's fun to run anyhow, he thought. It was fun, certainly. 
He felt as if his limbs were strung together on springs. He ran easily, without effort, each step bounding into the next like elastic. After a few minutes of this, Henry had a new thought. Now you've tried how easy you can run. Let's see how fast you can run. And then, not only Henry himself, but the enormous crowd as well, began to see how fast he could run. Slowly, he gained on the fellow ahead of him, and passed him. With the next fellow as a goal, he gradually crept alongside, and passed him with a spurt. The crowd shouted itself hoarse. The field all along the course was black with people. Henry could hear them cheering for number four as he pounded by. Six runners remained ahead of him. Here was the kind of race the crowd loved. Not an easily won affair between two runners, but a gradual victory between the best runner and overpowering odds. Henry could see the finish flag now in the distance. He began to spurt. He passed numbers 14 and 3. He passed 25, 6, and 1 almost in a bunch. Number 16 remained ahead. Then Henry began to think of winning. How much the $25 prize would mean to Jess and the rest. Number 16 must be passed. I'm going to win this race, he said quietly in his own mind. I'll bet you I am. The thought lent him speed. Number four! Number four! yelled the crowd. Henry did not know that the fellow ahead had been ahead all the way. And just because he, Henry, had slowly gained over them all, the crowd loved him best. Henry waited until he could have touched him. He was within three yards of the wire. He bent double and put all his energy into the last elastic bound. He passed number 16 and shot under the wire. Then the crowd went wild. It scrambled over and under the fence, cheering and blowing its horns. Henry felt himself lifted on many shoulders and carried panting up to the reviewing stand. He bowed laughing at the sea of faces and took the little silver cup with its little wings in a sort of dream. It is a wonder he did not lose the envelope containing the prize, for he hardly realized when he took it what it was. Then someone said, What's your name, boy? That called him to earth. He had to think quickly, under cover of getting his breath. Henry James, he replied. This was perfectly true, as far as it went. In a moment, the enormous signboard flashed out the name. Henry James, number four, age 13, winner of Free For All. Meanwhile, the man of the dressing room was busy locating Mr. Cordis of the Cordis Mills. He knew that was exactly the kind of story that old James Henry would like. Yes, sir, he said, smiling. I says to him, you don't expect to win, of course. And he says to me, oh, no, but it's lots of fun to run, you know. Thank you, sir, returned Mr. Cordis. That's a good story. Bring the youngster over here, if you don't mind. When Henry appeared, a trifle shaken out of his daze, and anxious only to get away, 
Mr. Cordes stretched out his hand. I like your spirit, my boy, he said. I like your running, too. But it's your spirit that I like best. Don't ever lose it. Thank you, said Henry, shaking hands. And there was only one in the whole crowd that knew who was shaking hands with whom. Least of all, James Henry and Henry James. More Education With $25 in his hand, Henry felt like a millionaire as he edged through the crowd to the gate. That's the boy, he heard many a person say when he was forced to hold his silver cup in view out of harm's way. When Dr. McAllister drove into his yard, he found a boy washing the concrete drives as calmly as if nothing had happened. He chuckled quietly, for he had stopped at the fairgrounds for a few minutes himself and held a little conversation with the scorekeeper. When Henry faithfully repeated the list of winners, however, he said nothing about it. What are you going to do with the prize? queried Dr. McAllister. Put it in a savings bank, I guess, replied Henry. Have you an account? asked his friend. No, but Jess says it's high time we started one. Good for Jess, said the doctor absently. I remember an old uncle of mine who put $200 in the savings bank and forgot all about it. He left it in there till he died, and it came to me. It amounted to $1,600. Who? said Henry. He left it alone for over 40 years, you see explained Dr. McAllister. When Henry arrived at his little home in the woods with the $25, for he never thought of putting it in the bank before Jess saw it, he found a delicious lunch waiting for him. Jess had boiled the little vegetables in clear water, and the moment they were done, she had drained off the water in a remarkable drainer and heaped them on the biggest dish with melted butter on top. His family almost forgot to eat while Henry recounted the details of the exciting race. And when he showed them the silver cup and the money, they actually did stop eating, hungry as they were. I said my name was Henry James, repeated Henry. That's all right. So it is, affirmed Jess. It's clever, too. You can use that name for your bank book. So I can, said Henry, delighted. I'll put it in the bank this very afternoon. And by the way, I brought something for dinner tonight. Jess looked in the bag. There were a dozen smooth brown potatoes. I know how to cook those, said Jess, nodding her head wisely. You just wait. Can't wait, hardly, Henry called back as he went to work. When he had gone... Benny frolicked around noisily with the dog. Benny? Jess exclaimed suddenly as she hung her dish towels up to dry. It's high time you learned to read. No school now? said Benny hopefully. No, but I can teach you. If I only had a primer. Let's make one, suggested Violet, shaking her hair back. 
We have saved all the wrapping paper off the bundles, you know. Jess was staring off into space, as she always did when she had a bright idea. Violet, she cried at last. Remember those chips? We could whittle out letters like type, make each letter backwards, you know. And stamp them on the paper, finished Violet. There would be only 26 in all. It wouldn't be awfully hard, said Jess. We wouldn't bother with capitals. What could we use for ink? Violet wondered, wrinkling her forehead. Blackberry juice, cried Jess. The two girls clapped their hands. Won't Henry be surprised when he finds that Benny can read? Now, from this conversation, Benny gathered that this type business would take his sisters quite a while to prepare. So he was not much worried about his part of the work. In fact, he sorted out chips very cheerfully and watched his teachers with interest as they dug carefully around the letters with the two knives. We'll teach him two words to begin with, said Jess. Then we won't have to make the whole alphabet at once. Let's begin to teach him C. That's easy, agreed Violet. And then we won't have to make but two letters, S and E. And the other word will be me, cried Jess. So only three pieces of type in all, Violet. Jess cut the wiggly S because she had the better knife, while Violet struggled with the E. Then Jess cut a wonderful M, while Violet sewed the primer down the back and gathered a cupful of blackberries. As she sat by, crushing the juice from the berries with a stick, Jess planned the ink pad. We'll have to use a small piece of the washcloth, I'm afraid, she said at last. But finally they were obliged to cut off only the uneven bits of cloth which hung around the edges. These they used for stuffing the pad and covered them with a pocket which Violet carefully ripped from her small apron. When this was sewn firmly into place and put into a small saucer, Jess poured on the purple juice. Even Benny came up on his hands and knees to watch her stamp the first S. It came out beautifully on the first page of the primer, purple and clean cut. The E was almost as good, and as for the M, Jess's hand shook with pure pride as she stamped it evenly on the page. At last, the two words were completed. In fact, they were done long before Benny had the slightest idea his sisters were ready for him. He came willingly enough for his first lesson, but he could not tell the two words apart. Don't you see, Benny? Jess explained patiently. This one, with the wiggly S, says see. But Benny did not see. I'll tell you, Jess, said Violet at last. Let's print each word again on a separate card. That's the way they do it at school. And then let him point to see. The girls did this using squares of stiff brown paper. Then they called Benny. Very carefully, Jess explained again which words said see hissing like a huge snake to show him how the S sounded. Then she mixed the cards and said encouragingly, Now, Benny, point to C. Benny did not move. He sat with his finger on his lip. But the children were nearly petrified with astonishment to see Watch cock his head on one side 
and gravely put his paw on the center of the word. Now, this was only an accident. Watch did not really know one of the words from the other, but Benny thought he did. And was he going to let a dog get ahead of him? Not Benny. In less time than it takes to tell it, Benny had learned both words perfectly. Good old Watch said, "Jess, it isn't really hard at all," said Benny. "Is it, Watch?" During all this experiment, Jess had not forgotten her dinner. When you are living outdoors all the time, you do not forget things like that. In fact, both girls had learned to tell the time very accurately by the sun. Jess started up a beautiful little fire of cones. As they turned into red-hot ashes and began to topple over one by one into the glowing pile, Jess laughed delightedly. She had already scrubbed the smooth potatoes and dried them carefully. She now poked them one by one into the glowing ashes with a stick from a birch tree. Whenever a potato lit up dangerously, she gave it a poke into a new position. And when Henry found her, she was just rolling the charred balls out onto the flat stones. Burned 'em up? Queried Henry. Burned nothing, cried Jess energetically. You just wait. Can't wait hardly, replied Henry, smiling. You said that a long time ago, said Benny. Well, isn't it true? Demanded Henry, rolling his brother over on the pine needles. Come, said Violet breathlessly, forgetting to ring the bell. Hold them with leaves, directed Jess, because they're terribly hot. Knock them on the side and scoop them out with a spoon and put butter on top. The children did as the little cook requested, sprinkled on a little salt from the salt shaker. And took a taste. Ah," said Henry. "It's good," said Benny blissfully. It was about the most successful meal of all, in fact. When the children in later years recalled their different feasts, they always came back to the baked potatoes roasted in the ashes of the pine cones. Henry said it was because they were poked with a black birch stick. Benny said it was because Jess nearly burned them up. Jess herself said, "Maybe it was the remarkable salt shaker, which had to stand on its head always because there was no floor to it." After supper, the children were still not too sleepy to show Henry the new primer, and allowed Benny to display his first reading lesson. Henry, greatly taken with the idea, sat up until it was almost dark, chipping out the remaining letters of the alphabet. If you should ever care to see this interesting primer. Which was finally ten pages in length. You might examine this faithful copy of its first page, which required four days for its completion. Page one. See me. See me. O O C me. Come. Come to me. Come to see me. Cat, rat. Henry always insisted that the rat's tail was too long, but Jess said his knife must have slipped when he was making the A, so they were even after all. Ginseng. 
What Dr. McAllister ever did before Henry began to work for him would be hard to guess. There were certainly as many duties always waiting for him as he had time to do. And it made no difference to the industrious boy what the job was. Nothing was too hard or too dirty for him to attempt. One day, the doctor set him at the task of clearing out his little laboratory. The boy washed bottles, pasted labels, and cleaned instruments for one whole morning. And more than one broken flask on its way to the rubbish heap was carefully carried up the hill to the hidden family. While Henry was busy carefully lettering a sticky label, he noticed a young man in the outer office who was talking with the doctor. "'Can you tell me if this is real ginseng?' Henry heard him say. "'It certainly is,' returned Dr. McAllister. "'They will give you two dollars a pound for the root at any of the drugstores.' Henry ventured to steal a peep and found he could readily see the plant the man was holding. It was about a foot high, with branching leaves and a fine feathery white flower. Henry knew it was exactly the same white puffball that he had noticed in Violet's vase that very morning. When the young man had gone, Henry said, I know where I can find a whole lot of that plant. Is that so? replied the doctor kindly. It's only the root, you know, that is valuable. But anyone who wants the bother of digging it up can sell any quantity of that. When Henry went home at noon, he related enough of this incident to set his sisters to work in good earnest. They started out with both knives and two strong iron spoons, and the kettle. And with Benny to run about finding every white flower he could, the girls succeeded, with a great deal of hard digging, in finding enormous quantities of ginseng root. In fact, that first afternoon's work resulted in a kettleful, not counting a single leaf or stem. Henry was delighted when he saw the result of their work and took it next day to the largest drugstore, where he received three dollars for the roots. Without any hesitation, Henry paid a visit to the dry goods store and came home with a pair of new brown stockings for Benny. That was a great day in the woods. Benny gave them no peace at all until they had admired his wonderful new stockings and felt of each rib. There had been one other thing that Benny had given them no peace about. On the night when the children had crept so quietly away from the baker's wife, Jess had forgotten to take Benny's bear. This bear was a poor-looking creature, which had once been an expensive, bright-eyed teddy bear made of brown plush. But Benny had taken it to bed every single night for three years and had loved it by day, so that it was not attractive to anyone but himself. Both eyes were gone, and its body was very limp. But Benny had certainly suffered a great deal trying to sleep in a strange bed without his beloved bear. Jess, therefore, had plans on foot. The moment she saw Benny's new stockings, she washed the old brown stockings with their many neat darns and hung them up to dry. And early in the afternoon, she and Violet sat with the work bag between them, each with a stocking. With Benny sitting by to watch proceedings, Jess mapped out a remarkable teddy bear. One stocking, carefully trimmed, made the head and body, while the other furnished material for two arms, two legs, and the stuffing. 
Jess worked hard over the head, pushing the padding well into the blunt nose. Violet embroidered two beautiful eyes in black and white and a jet black nose tip. You must make the tail too, Jessie, said Benny, watching her snip the brown rags. Bears don't have tails, Benny, argued Jess, although she wasn't exactly sure she was right. Your old bear didn't have any tail, you know. But this bear has a tail, though, returned Benny, knowing that Jess would put on two tails if he insisted. And it was true. His bear finally did have a tail. What kind of tail? asked Jess helplessly at last. Bushy and long and slim, or cottontail? Long and slim, decided Benny with great satisfaction. So I can pull it. Benny, cried Jess, laughing in spite of herself. But she made a tail, long and slim, exactly as Benny ordered, and sewed it on very tightly, so that it might be pulled, if desired. She fastened on the legs and arms with flat hinges, so the bear might sit down easily, and added at last a pair of cunning flappy ears and a happy collar of braided red string from a bundle. "'What's his name, Jessie?' inquired Benny, when the wonderful bear was finally handed over to him. "'His name?' repeated Jess. "'Well, you know he's a new bear. He isn't your old one, so I wouldn't call him Teddy.' "'Oh, no,' said Benny, shocked. "'This is not Teddy. This has a pretty tail.' "'Of course,' agreed Jess, trying not to laugh.' Well, you know we sold that ginseng to pay for your new stockings. And if you hadn't had your new ones, we couldn't have made this bear out of your old ones. You want his name to be Stockings? Asked Benny politely. Stockings? No, answered Jess. I was thinking of ginseng. Ginseng, echoed Benny, thinking deeply. That's a nice name. All right. I think Ginseng will be a good bear if Wachi doesn't bark at him. And from that moment, the bear's name was Ginseng as long as he lived. And he lived to be a very old bear indeed. <laughs>